This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. Welcome to the Sharkpreneur Podcast with Kevin Harrington and Seth Green. Kevin Harrington is the inventor of the infomercial, one of the original sharks from the hit TV show Shark Tank, and has generated over $5 billion in TV and digital direct response sales. Seth Green is the world's first trusted authority on cutting-edge direct response marketing, a best-selling author, and the only three-time Marketer of the Year nominee. On the podcast, Kevin and Seth interview Sharkpreneurs who share straight talk on what it takes to explode your business. Why do so many businesses struggle while others seem to explode overnight? Do you wish you had the secret to this type of exponential growth? Now, I've scaled more than 20 businesses to over $100 million, and it's not just luck. In my new book with Mark Tim, Mentor to Millions, you'll learn the repeatable framework I use in all my business ventures for massive success. Order at KevinMentor.com and get over $1,000 in bonuses. Head to KevinMentor.com. Welcome to the podcast. This is your host, Seth Green. Today, I have the good fortune to be interviewing John Ustall of a founding partner of Kelly Ustall Law Firm in Fort Lauderdale. He leads a team of 14 elite trial lawyers who have won some of the largest verdicts in the country. I can't wait to dive in. John, thanks so much for joining us. Absolutely. Glad to be here. All right. Special thanks to financial advisor Robert Lehman, who connected us. So, John, what inspired you in the first place to go to law school? Yeah, you know, I'm, I don't have a story about something that happened when I was a kid, and I always wanted to be a lawyer. To be honest, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do um, uh, after college, and uh, some of my friends were taking the uh, law school admissions test, and I, um, this sounds like a, uh, <laughs> I'm not sure this is the story I should tell the start, but I took the test, and I got a perfect score, so I thought, oh, wow, you know, maybe I'll be good at this lawyering thing. Wait, was that the LSATs? Yes, they all said. So just for the heck of it, you took the LSATs, aced them and said, I'll be a lawyer. Absolutely incredible. That is probably the most unique story I've heard. So um, Yeah, and you should know, it's not like I was killing it in undergrad. I, I took Russian for some reason. I wanted, I, I wanted to study abroad. I thought I'll study in Russia, you know, the evil empire and go see what it was like over there. And I got really bad grades in Russian. I would take whatever class kind of caught my fancy. And so I didn't have a great GPA. And uh, so anyway. Well, apparently uh, fate I, intervened and gave you a good, a, a phenomenal score on the LSATs. After law yeah. school, you could have specialized in any area of law. How did you end up, you know, doing, I mean, you have won some, I mean, your successes have resulted in safer fuel tanks, safer seatbelts, better medical care, safer equipment for firefighters some of the most complex and difficult legal cases of our time. How did you arrive at that as your area of specialization? I, you know, I really, th there's kind of like a pipeline if you do well in law school to the, to the biggest and best firms. And certainly they have these phenomenal lawyers at these firms. 
uh, but you you start to realize that they represent the most powerful people and the biggest corporations and who are they who's on the other side you know and and it's, it, it, it you have to really take a step back because it's so easy to just go along oh i want the highest paying job and i want this is the hardest job to get so i i if i get it i have to take it but if you take a step step back i don't think most people who go to law school go to law school just so they can make big companies richer by screwing uh, little people who can't do anything about it. Like nobody gets up in the morning and say, oh, I wish I could screw what $1.50 from every poor person and then I'll be rich. It's just, but yet you end up, you know, that's where you end up to some extent. I mean, I'm, they do amazing things too at these firms, but they definitely maintain the status quo in things like, um, you know, wage theft or whatever. You got to defend the big companies. So I was lucky enough um, it's really hard to get a judicial clerkship out of law school with one with a federal judge, especially an appellate judge. And I was lucky enough to get one of those. And he was this judge, uh, Judge Fay on the 11th Circuit U.S. Court of Appeal was a very rare thing, which was he had been a trial lawyer. And by trial lawyer, I mean someone who represented real human beings. And um, and I, I, you know, I listened to his stories and I thought, wow, you know, that's what I want to do. That's, that's who I want to be. Awesome. So there's a, uh, so you, that was your inspiration at that point, but one doesn't necessarily just say, that's what I want to be. And then hang up a shingle and, you know, take on the country of Argentina. So talk a little bit about kind of the evolution. Yeah. So I, when I first, uh, after my clerkship, I started looking for jobs with with firms the, that were plaintiffs contingency firms, which is what he had done. So someone, it's not always a physical injury, but someone gets hurt, they can't afford to pay a lawyer by the hour. So they find a lawyer who will say, I'll only get paid if I win. So I was looking at those kind of firms and uh, I got a job offer. It's people in that field knew my judge and he had been one of the greatest trial lawyers ever. And so I, I got a job and, and they were getting ready for a trial. It was about a year away. And they, this was probably one of the most fortuitous things in my life. They put me on the case to work it up. In hindsight, it's crazy that you'd put someone so young on such a big case. This was a family who was stopped at a toll booth in a station wagon and they got hit from behind with a very light tap and the car exploded and there was something really bad going on at General Motors. And um, I, I worked up the case and then we went to trial and along with two more experienced lawyers um, tried the case, but it was a six month trial. It was the longest trial in General Motors history. One of the longest trials in American history, one of the biggest verdicts ever. And it really did change how fuel systems were designed. Uh, you know, cars don't, explode anymore in and that's minor a good thing. thank you for that <laughs> yeah that's a big thing there there were a thousand people a year burning to death in car crashes and and they're not anymore so i mean it just gives me chills even saying that say, now, how does that make you feel of, to know that you were a part of saving so many lives it, it's it's hard to describe you know it really it feels like you're get up in the morning and you're going to do something that has meaning it wasn't just me you know i obviously right. there's a whole, there was hundreds of people there were lawsuits before and there were judges and juries 
uh, and experts and people at General Motors, engineers who said this is what the standard should be and got overruled by management but kept fighting. There were a lot of heroes and I was just, you know, a little part of it, but it's still just so, uh, it just, uh, with everything bad going on, you know, you can just take a deep breath and say, wow, you know, I'm, I'm so glad I have the job I have. That is absolutely incredible. And you have verdict after verdict and story after story. We, I, we, we don't have, I mean, I'm sure we could do this for hours and hours. We only have to, let's, let's do a couple more. I mean, you were named product liability lawyer of the year. You were named most effective lawyer for product liability. So we talked about safer fuel tanks. Uh, talk about safer seatbelts. So, yeah, here's another crazy thing that I didn't know um, until, unfortunately, someone came to me and he was paralyzed and he said I was wearing my seatbelt and it, it came loose in the, in the crash. And I thought, well, how could that happen? You know, that doesn't seem like it could happen. But I, I went to the scene, uh, talked to some of the neighbors uh, who lived near the scene. There were houses in the, in the vicinity. And one guy came out and he's like, yeah, I remember the crash. And the seatbelt was hanging out the window, and I thought that's the oddest thing ever. So, yeah, if, obviously, if the seatbelt was hanging out the window, it was, you know, if it hadn't been worn, it wouldn't unspool during the crash. So I said, this guy must be right, and we, we, we worked on that case for a long time, and it turns out, I don't still have it. I, oh, I do have, I still have this. I, I kept these all, this was uh, years ago, but I still keep these seatbelts because we found out that if if the seatbelt gets hit, and this this was a pickup truck that kind of got hit from the side, and the car went under it, and if the if the seatbelt stock gets a shock from the bottom, if I drop this seatbelt right now and onto the floor, when it hits here, this will pop out. So there's a there's a latch that is vulnerable to a certain vertical force. And people knew that, you know, in, in the industry. So European designs had what's called the lock for the latch. Cost about 10 cents. Well, a lot of seatbelts didn't have locks for the latch, you know, but because of litigation, they do now. That is absolutely incredible. And then you were threatened in Argentina because you were, talk a little bit about the case and, and what Argentina's dirty war was and what part you played. So... So the cases that I had um, were uh, brought in the United States on behalf of Argentine victims. And the short story is that there was a blood medicine, a, a medicine that was made from blood. Uh, it was for hemophiliacs. And um, it had been recalled in the United States because it was contaminated uh, with a virus, a deadly virus. And just the very, very short version is after the recall, after it was stopped being sold in the U.S., they, they, some companies didn't want to take the loss of destroying it, so they sold it in South America, particularly Argentina. So we brought suit for those, for some of the victims in the United... I should pause and just say, wow, right? That's, can you believe a human being would do that to another human being? But anyway, those companies did. So we, we brought suit in the United States, and the reason we sued in the United States instead of Argentina was Argentina had a, um, a different legal system, and there was no way to, to sue an American company in uh, Argentina because they didn't reside there, and that's not where they acted. 
So that was the law, not to mention that the practicalities were would make it impossible. So we brought suit here and the defendants said, oh no, that's not true. You could, the law, that's not the law. You can bring suit in Argentina and, um, and it's practical to do so. So they had some experts who I deposed saying, that's not true. You're making this up. The law in Argentina is very clear. And um, so uh, some of those experts were judges who had been appointed a, a decade earlier during Argentina's what they call the dirty war. So uh, a military junta took over, citizens were tortured, they would be uh, taken from their schools. Some of them were high school students, college students, anyone who might be seen as pro-trade union or pro-worker, and they would be pulled out of their classroom or their house in the middle of the night, tortured, brought in a plane, they fly the plane out over to the ocean and throw them alive uh, out of the plane into the ocean. It was a really horrible thing. And people who collaborated with the junta, you know, I thought that was uh, relevant to say who these, maybe they'd be collaborating with American companies in, in terms of uh, making something up in, in order to get away with it. Anyway, I, I know this story is long, but you have to know all that to know when I was asking some of those questions uh, and really pressing hard about this, um, my co-counsel who was Argentine said uh, to me, this is not a movie and this is not America. You need to leave. And um, I, I still didn't get it. I thought that's crazy, but I got up and the, 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 he ended the deposition. And uh, um, I went to, there was a couple more things that were more blatant threats. Um, and uh, I went to the, airport went home no problem I thought these guys are crazy the next time I went back on the way back to the airport I almost got kidnapped so I haven't been back since I can imagine why wow um so who do you want to play you in the movie <laughs> uh Daniel Craig why not pick 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 no uh, I, I, you know, I wish there was a movie about stuff like this because I don't think most people understand how um, how much control big companies have about uh, over their day to day lives and how dangerous it is. You know, what they people don't see the effects of a lot of these corporate decisions, mangled bodies and 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 burnt people, and so yeah, I, I hope there is a movie. How do clients find you now? Usually they, they find some lawyer they know and that lawyer says, okay, this is something we need someone who's willing to go to war. It's a different kind of uh, practice than the vast majority of lawyers. So they, most lawyers will say, okay. Right. I mean, you've got I elements of both it. product liability and mass tort almost, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And we do some traditional, my firm does some traditional product liability, some traditional mass tort, but just like you said, um, sometimes there's, um, the, you've got the worst of both worlds. I mean, the worst of both worlds from a business perspective yes. or like, yeah. With all the success you've had, I mean, you won every case against Big Tobacco. What would, what's your biggest challenge now? Um. Well, when I, that first trial, when I was right out of law school, where, you know, it had a real effect on the world, 
um, there was a big verdict. The clients got um, won their case, and then there was a change in the design of fuel systems. Gradually over the years, it's become much harder. I think the system is much more um, difficult to, to make that kind of change. In, in my opinion, um, I'll just give you an example. My, my last big result, um, and I was very, I am right now very proud of it because it was a little girl. It was a defective uh, pressure cooker. There was a cover-up. They almost got away with it. It was like a devious cover-up. Other lawyers wouldn't touch it. And um, we proved it and we, we changed this little girl's life. You know, she was disfigured from berms. She had amputations on all four limbs. Um, and so she would have had a really hellish life if we hadn't come through for her. And we did. But no recall, right? There's no, the government agency still hasn't gotten around to the investigation. They're so backlogged. And the, uh, the incident happened uh, five years ago now. Um, we, I, I couldn't take the risk of going to verdict and getting the press that would have maybe necessitated the recall because this little girl, we, you know, once, once I got them to uh, a settlement amount that would have changed her life, we had to settle. But basically those pressure cookers are still out there. And um, so the biggest challenge is I think I, people, and I'm sure there's some truth to this, that some people are taking advantage of the system as with frivolous lawsuits. And so I'm the biggest supporter of whatever you can do to end frivolous lawsuits. But I just don't want people to confuse frivolous lawsuits and righteous lawsuits. And that the, 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 the confusion, I think, is intentional. The big companies try to confuse those issues. Talk about frivolous lawsuits, but then put caps on righteous lawsuits so we can never really be harmed when we do bad things. So that's the biggest challenge, getting, get it, making a difference. It's a lot harder these days. Your passion is obvious. What do you like best about what you're doing? Well, you know, when you have a client and you're losing sleep because you know you have to win and then you come through, you know, and you get to tell them, you know, we won, you won. Uh, that's, that's probably the best. Those are the, the best days. I bet. For our folks who are watching or listening and want to learn more, where is the best place for us to send them? Um, I'm writing a book called Corporate Serial Killers. So I have a website, johnustall.com. That's a great title. <laughs> Isn't it Do great? you have a yeah. publisher? Yeah, uh, not yet. Not yet. I would like to toss our hat in the ring. We need to have a separate conversation about that. All right. All right. Yeah, I have a uh, proposal. I'm ready to go, but I've been holding off because I want to be I don't want, I want to be further, far enough along in the book that I'll meet my publishing deadline. Okay. And I'm sorry. The, the website is John Ustall, U-U-S-T-A-L.com. Yes. Yes. I'm on a right. Corporate crime fighter, lawyer, author. Yes. Corporate crime fighter is a great tech. You need like a superhero outfit. <laughs> you go as yourself for Halloween. That is awesome. Well, John, uh, we greatly appreciate your time. It's been both entertaining, educational, and scary. Thank you so much for what you do and who you are. Um, for our folks who are watching or listening, go check out johnustall.com. We'll put the link in the show notes. John, thanks again for your time. Absolutely. It was a pleasure. Thank you, everybody, for watching or listening. Thank you, Robert Lehman, for the amazing introduction. And we will talk to you or see you all next time. Do you need money to fund your idea, product, or service? Are you ready to take your business to the next level but need capital to get it done? 
Kevin Harrington has heard more than 50,000 pitches and knows how to help you make the perfect pitch to get the funding for your entrepreneurial dream. He's distilled the process down in his perfect pitch cheat sheet, and it's yours for free. Just text PITCH to him right now at 727-888-2100. Text PITCH to 727-888-2100 right now and claim your free perfect pitch cheat sheet. Text PITCH to 727-888-2100 to start funding your dream today. This show has been produced by Market Domination, LLC. To discover how you can have your own show completely done for you and turn it into a real published book and become the authority in your marketplace, go to www.marketdominationllc.com slash podcast offer. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.